You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Aram Gutsuzian, professor of history at University of Memphis, and Charles McKinney, professor of Africana Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. McKinney is the author of numerous essays on African American history and the book Greater Freedom, The Evolution of Civil Rights Struggle in Wilson, North Carolina, which was published in 2010, and he is currently at work on a book titled Losing the Party of Lincoln, George Washington Lee and the Struggle for the Soul of the Republican Party, which explores the life and work of George Washington Lee, an African-American Republican operative and civil rights activist who lived in Memphis in the middle of the 20th century. Gutsuzian is the author of five books, including most recently, Down to the Crossroads, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Meredith March Against Fear, published in 2014, and 2019's The Men in the Moment, the election of 1968, and the rise of partisan politics in America. Together, Gutsuzian and McKinney edited the 2018 collection Unseen Light, Black Struggles for Freedom in Memphis, Tennessee, published by University of Kentucky Press, which we'll be discussing today. Aram and Charles, welcome. Thank you for making the time for this. Thanks for having us, John. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. So I'm really glad you made the time for to talk about this book. Um, and I have to say, I was really excited just, you know, seeing it uh, appear in the sort of, you know, the way things appear now, the cover in social media, the sort of promise of it forthcoming. And then downloading it on my Kindle, it was exactly what, what I was really hoping it would be, which is a way of elevating Memphis as a city but in that way of elevating Memphis as a city in a sort of national frame, um, actually recognizing Memphis for, for the various kinds of cultural, historical, and political events that have happened there that both, you know, spread out across the country that, um, you know, the, that it draws in the country into itself. And is really, I think underscores both its uniqueness as a city and its centrality for, for imagining and thinking about the United States. And so a lot of the, the questions that I have to sort of get us talking and thinking are around that. And I have to say, I thought the volume, I think the volume is incredibly successful at that exact aim. It really is such an amazing portrait of, of the city and draws on so many different perspectives. You know, authored books, I think are sort of the default when someone has something to say but I really appreciate it as an edited work and its ability to bring in multiple disciplines and multiple perspectives. And so when I think about that, you know, I appreciate so much that it's an edited volume, but I also know that edited volumes are unlike authored volumes in that it requires, I think another level of sort of passion and commitment because editing, I don't think it gets the professional recognition it deserves. It deserves all the recognition in the world, especially these kinds of really strong, varied projects. So I wanted to start out with, in some ways, an invitation to, um, you know, personal narrative, sort of autobiographical reflection, 
about your own passions and commitments that made you put aside the time and energy to make this project happen? So Aaron, maybe uh, get us started. Sure. Um, I think that composing an edited volume, felt, like you suggest, felt differently than uh, writing a book, right? When, when you write a book, it sort of consumes you on a more consistent basis. It kind of occupies a period in your life, right? Now, now that I've written some books, right, each of them is sort of a chunk in my life, and I think of it as associated with a particular stage. And, it really uh, is. In that, in that aspect. And uh, An Unseen Light was more like a, felt more like a culmination of a longer time in Memphis for me. Um, you know, I started at the University of Memphis in 2004, uh, in the same academic year. Chuck started at Rhodes College. Uh, he came in the spring of 2005. Uh, and soon we were friends and, you know, uh, collaborating on, on various, you know, whether it's an event or whether it's visiting each other's classes. Uh, and in the interim, you know, I started to mentor graduate students. Uh, and Chuck had a host of really talented undergraduate students. Uh, and we kind of built, you know, a, a, a little academic community. Um, and what I found was that a lot of my graduate students were pursuing research topics uh, for their dissertations on the history of Memphis because there was it was a fertile ground. So I would say our first conversations about doing a book like this probably started around 2011, 2012. You know. Mm-hmm. Around yeah. the time when we were getting yeah. tenure and looking and thinking about uh, you know another project or what have you, but at the point it was at that point it was still just sort of a wouldn't it be nice to do this someday because because we had uh-huh. these these grad students around and we and we knew other people of course who were working on Memphis history, uh, and then probably around Chuck would you say around like 2015 that we started yeah. doing this in earnest yeah, yeah. right um, yeah. and that was because of a looming date in front of us and that was the uh, 2018 which was the uh, 50th anniversary of the King assassination. Uh, in Memphis. And we knew that that would bring a lot of <clears throat> national attention, a lot of scholarly attention to Memphis. Um, and I'd say that we kind of wanted to be part of that conversation as, as historians. Mm-hmm. Chuck, you want to add on that? Um, yeah, I, you know, um, it, this was a, truly and genuinely a labor of love. Um, and I think both Aram and I came to it in a really, in a really organic way, right? You know, both of us who were already we're already studying civil rights, you know, Aram, um, initially through the lens of sort of, of sports and, you know, in particular, you know, particular historical figures. Um, everybody go out and buy his biography of uh, Sidney Poitier, um, you know, shameless plug for my homie, uh, Aram. Um, you know, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, it was just really, it was really fortuitous, right? So Aram was doing, you know, Aram was doing his grind um on on civil rights and that led him to be increasingly curious about memphis and how the movement was unfurling in memphis um i am also a civil rights scholar right civil rights historian and so you know i'm particularly interested in local movements how are movements cultivated how are they created and crafted in particular cities right you know we've got such a a broad uh, we've got a really broad understanding of you know of national narratives and of you know of big ticket uh-huh. big ticket uh-huh. individuals and organizations you know king the kennedys you know johnson NAACP, urban league snick so on and so forth so i was growing increasingly curious and interested in um in a freedom movement uh in in memphis right and so you know the stars aligned and and again just to really emphasize what aaron was talking about there was a community of of, of people, right? You know, a critical mass of the folks in this book were graduate students, right? You know, trained um, largely by Aram Goodsusian, right? You know, I've got a, you know, we've got an undergrad 
um, a person in the um, Anthony Syracuse is one of my undergrad, one of my students, right? You know, one mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. one of um, one of Aram's colleagues uh, wrote a wrote a chapter. One of my colleagues, Andrea Robinson, wrote a chapter. So there was this large community of of people thinking about Memphis, right? So when we put the call out for an edited volume, um, you know, we we got some really quick we got some really quick yeses. Um, and one of the other things that I think really that really helped us to to, to move this along. I think about something my colleague Tim Hubner um, told me when I first got here, uh, and he said Memphis is the most under-researched major city in the country. Right now, that didn't mean a whole lot to me in 2005 because I was trying to finish up my book on North Carolina. Right, I was trying to keep my job. Right, so quick, you know, quick I, plug, quick yeah. plug. That's an excellent book, by the way. Oh well, thank you. Greater freedom. So. Hey man, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, so you know. Um, so Tim said that, and that stuck in the back of my brain for a while, right? You know, that Memphis is one of the most under-researched major cities in the country. And I was like, how could that be, right? You know, when I first got here, you know, all, you know Elvis, Ribs, the Blues, Martin King died here, God, Kojic, sure. right? You know, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Grizzlies basketball, right? I mean, you know, I was, I, you know, these, all of these things loom so large on a national level, right? Yeah. But then when you do dig into the research and when you start knocking around a little bit, you're like, oh, OK, there have been five scholarly books written on this particular piece of Memphis. Right. There have been six scholarly books written on this particular piece of Memphis. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a you know, there's 10 essays here and 15 blog posts here. And so when we came together to say, hey, y'all, what do you think about an edited volume? Right. You know, um, I don't think we got it. I don't think we got any no's. Right. I think we every person we asked to be in this volume said yes. Um, they were already either working on something or had finished something up that they were looking to get published. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, so the stars aligned really, really powerfully um, for this volume to happen. Yeah, I mean, that, that's revealing, actually, the, that kind of return rate on yeses. That's, uh, yeah, that says something. Yeah, a lot of people have horror stories about editing volumes, right? You know, authors who say they're going to promise something and don't pass it in, uh, stuff gets delayed clashes between the editors. It, this mm -hmm. was the exact opposite of that. This was like a, a, the perfect experience in that sense, uh, uh, both in the, in the sense of working with Chuck, who was just a, an ideal collaborator, uh, but also in the sense that we we knew who we wanted to ask to write the mm -hmm. essays from the mm -hmm. beginning. Uh, and everyone wanted to be a part of it you know, the, the, because they all, they also felt like they were part of this community uh, that right. between U of M and Rhodes, you know, I think, uh, you know, as Chuck was mentioning, I think four of this, of the authors are, got their PhD from the university of Memphis. Um, one is my colleague, Beverly Bond uh, at Rhodes college, Charles Hughes and Andrea Robinson were both uh, Chuck's colleagues mm -hmm. who wrote essays. Uh, Jason Jordan was one of Chuck's students as an undergrad who then went on to get his PhD from the University of Illinois, now is a professor in the University of New Haven. Anthony Syracuse, who he mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there were other people who had written excellent books on the history of Memphis. Michael Honey, um, Lori Green, uh, Elizabeth Gritter. And they wanted to be part of it too because they, you know, uh, you know, they felt themselves, and they don't, they had comfort, you know, we had, of course, invited them for talks at various times through the years because they were the historians of Memphis. So, you know, it was a, it was a special experience in that way. One, I, I always, you know, have a sort of memories, uh, sort of bathed in a warm light when I think about it. <laughs> and also, um, just really quickly, I know you want to move on to the next question. We no. got a bunch of, we got a bunch of Memphians in this book too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that was the other thing that was kind of cool. The folks, a bunch of the folks who were in here writing about the city of Memphis, right, were 
born and raised in the city of Memphis, right? You know, educated, trained in the city of Memphis, right? So that's the other thing that I think kind of helps to anchor the book in, in a really resonant way, right? You know, when <clears throat> when you've got Memphians reflecting on reflecting on their city, right? You know, Beverly Bond is a Memphian reflecting on her city. Zandria Robinson, same thing, right? So, um, you know, so I think that I think that um, I, I thought that was an extra sort of special spice as well. I like that. I mean, I, you know, I absolutely agree with you that that sense of connection is, um, I mean, it's not just aesthetic, you know, it's not just, oh, it's nice to have people who have, you know, roots, but also the way those roots, um, I imagine, really enhance and elevate the essays themselves. You know, that's, that's you know, I think the collection has so many different kinds of voices in it. And I think part of it is exactly that way that, you know, you know, people have that deep connection to Memphis, educated in, grown up in, live in, um, as well as their scholarly voices. I, I think that's always such a, a fantastic combination. I mean, myself as a reader, you know, as someone who, who lived for a number of years in Memphis as a graduate student and, and just after as an unemployed PhD, um, not a great city to be an unemployed PhD, but, um, but, you know, I, I picked up the book in part as a sort of fanboy of the city. I mean, I just love the city. I think it's such an interesting place. And as I read what it really reaffirmed for me, I have to say is how serious the city is. It was something I remember uh, coming back to over and over with, with friends who had moved to Memphis when I was there and talking about the city sense is the way, kind of like New Orleans, it, it gets cast as like a fun place, a party place. And, you know, that has roots and stuff that is real about cultural production and legacy and so forth. But it's also, uh, you know, I always would come back to, you know, it's a very serious place. You know, it has to also be taken very seriously. I think the volume really makes sure that happens. Absolutely. That is taken seriously as a place, but it doesn't lack a sense of, of, of enthusiasm about the place i you know that's a hard balance to get in a in a book that's a fairly sober academic book you know um, so maybe you know if in some ways i think you've both addressed this um you know but what is it you know if you're to sort of zoom out from the project or even from the the origins of the project how would you describe what it is about memphis that warrants a specialized volume because I think that's always you want to write a volume, whether it's on a figure in the history of ideas, a novelist or a place. There's that first question, you know, why is this worthy of a full book? Why is this not just a chapter in a book about the Mid-South, about the South, about the civil rights era? You know, what is it about Memphis that calls for a specialized volume in your mind? Charles, maybe start us off. Sure. Um, I think for me, it gets back to the under-researched piece, right? Yeah. Um, you know, when when your city is is as under researched, when a city is as, as under researched as a city like Memphis, right? That's just you know that's damaging. That's dangerous, right? Um, you know, when we're start when we're when we're making, um, you know, from all manner of levels, right? You know, um, little Johnny can't go to the library to find a book about his city. On up to you know policy decisions, right? You know, if all of this stuff is being made on you know, if these decisions are being made based on, you know, rumor and innuendo, right? You know, that's, 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 that's a problem, right? Um, yeah. 
you know, not and not plugging and not having Memphis sort of fully plugged in um, into some of these larger conversations, right? About mm-hmm. um, about urban spaces, about southern urban spaces, about urban spaces in the mid south, right? About black spaces, right? Yeah. Um, you know, to not have the city sort of fully plugged in. Um, in conversations about civil rights, for instance, right? You know, as a civil rights scholar, right? Memphis shows up, right? Like twice in the narrative, right? You know, Martin King comes mm-hmm. to Memphis in 1959. Um, well, maybe three times, right? He comes in, you know, 50, 59. He comes, uh, he comes in, uh, you know, 60, you know, uh, 66 for, uh, for the Meredith March. And then he comes and gets murdered in 68, right? You know, and so those are the only three times Memphis shows up in, in the civil rights narrative, right? And so, you know, oh, which obscures, you know, which obscures a century's worth of, 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 of struggle, right. Yeah. Um, on, on, on all tiers, on all levels, on all fronts. Right. So, you know, so, so this book, you know, the more we dug in, the more necessary this book in my view, right. The more necessary this book became, I think Aaron would, I think Aaron would share that sentiment, right. The more necessary this book became. And that was the other thing that our, you know, that our, that our authors, right. You know, our collaborators also knew and understood, right. Um, and again, the Memphians really understood this, right. You know, you know, Zandria Robinson has understood this for <laughs> decades, right. You know, um, Syracuse, same thing, Beverly Bond, same thing, right. You know, Memphis just does it's, it's, we take a hit when Memphis just doesn't show up in other places where it should be showing up, right. Uh-huh. Whether we're talking about, you know, again, whether we're talking about civil rights, whether we're talking about talking about race, we're talking about class, we're talking about issues of poverty, urban sprawl and development, music and culture, you know, and black, you know, American aesthetic life, you know, there's all sorts of places where it, it just doesn't show up, right? So, um, so yeah, so this was, you know, this was a little bit like a, you know, a finger in the, a finger in the dam, you know, this wasn't, you know, this isn't mm-hmm. the silver bullet necessarily, but, but it was something that was really, really necessary. Yeah, to add on to that, I think, you know, one of the things that makes Memphis particularly fascinating for historians of the South or historians of African-American history is uh, that it has a really unique political legacy as well. And when you, uh, you know, if you focus just on the moment of 1968, which is, of course, when Memphis enters into a sort of a national narrative about those themes, uh, it can be obscure. But if you, you know, sort of take a long view and think about, think about the 20th century as a whole, you see that Memphis is, uh, in some ways, a typical Southern city uh, in, in the sense of its, you know, sort of prosperity ethic and the sense of its legacy of racial violence, right? There's the, uh, the number of notorious lynchings, which, which a number of our colleagues write, uh, write about. Uh, but it's also unique in the sense that uh, because uh, Memphis in the first half of the 20th century is dominated by a political boss named E.H. Crump, um, mm-hmm. he uh, preserves the African-American right to vote as long as you're voting for the Crump machine or for his political machine in the, in the early 20th century. (laughs) So that's structures sort of this kind of paradox in black politics in Memphis, uh, that, that kind of lasts for most, for much of the 20th century in the sense that both black people have a sort of an unusual level of political power. This helps to foster, for instance, the rise of Robert church jr. As a, as a really important uh, power broker for the Republican party and uh, an African-American civic leader uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and you know, black people are sort of win certain political favors and certain influence in ways that is you wouldn't find in, in most other southern cities in the first half of the mm-hmm. 20th century. But at the same time, it's structured very much through this paternalist framework, right? It's, as long as you're serving the, the dominant power's interest. And that's you know, if you want to see that sort of translate into the civil rights era, you know, Memphis is 
part part of the reason Memphis is kind of off the national screen is because it doesn't have the big flashpoints of violence, right? There is no Little Rock here. There is no Ole Miss crisis. There is no fire hoses turned on the civil rights demonstrators like you see in Birmingham. Because Memphis's civil rights movement is kind of being coated in that paternalist goo, so to speak, right? Like there's a, you know, the... Uh, uh, the NAACP is, is very active here and is moving to desegregate public facilities before the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And so Memphis, on the surface, has this reputation for, quote, good race relations. Um, underneath that surface, the tensions are there. You know, the, the, the tensions of class, the tensions of overcrowding in classrooms, the yeah. tensions of police brutality. All those things exist in Memphis as they exist elsewhere. And they're now rising to the surface. And then the sanitation strike occurs, and it brings these economic issues to the fore. Uh, it mobilizes the black community, and then King gets assassinated, and so those grievances, all those, all that stuff that had stayed beneath the surface spills out, and it surprises the white power structure. But it was always there, in Memphis, right? And that's part yeah. of what these essays can help to illuminate. And I think when you when you talk when you were talking about you know both of you have talked about civil rights movement, and when you were talking about you know didn't have you know the photographical mo- photographable moment of, of Little Rock or the sort of epic character of Ole Miss as a sort of seat of the conf- you know of, of sort of Confederate symbolism and, and integration and hoses in, in Montgomery, Birmingham. It is interesting in that way. And this is, you know, just, it, 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 it has occurred to me for years, the assassination of King itself. I mean, that doesn't even, in some ways, doesn't become a sort of portrait of Memphis, I think, in the national imagination because it becomes the Lorraine Hotel, right? Or motel. And it, or it becomes King was assassinated rather than, you know, sort of marking Memphis as, you know, linked to the sanitation worker strike, class, race, struggle, the late King's vision and all of that. You know, for all of the talk about King's legacy, I don't need to convince very many people about this, but um, that the place of Memphis in that, you know, even being assassinated in the city, I think that gets absorbed into a different place unlike you know birmingham or little rock or oxford you know in the ways of as you were saying of sort of capturing a moment that reminds you then of this wider struggle this wider importance so but i think the volume i mean i absolutely think the volume is successful in you know as as charles said it's not a silver bullet but it's a few fingers in the dam you know that stuff has to happen so let me ask you ask you all about the the title unseen light i mean i think it's a it's a, a, a great title, and um, I would sort of ask you to, to, to muse on the title a little bit, and in, in, in some ways I think you've already uh, both uh, explicated the title for us, but for me, I mean, I love the introduction to the volume. I think, you know, the intro- introductions to edited volumes are sort of quirky to write, because the invitation initially, I think, is to say, here's a big question. And here's how the essays, here's a summary of the essays and how they respond. And that's fine. That's a sort of guidebook to the volume. But, you know, this introduction is a, is very different, especially at the outset. And what really drew me in, and this is as much about my interest as anything, but I think for most people sort of jarring, is that it starts out with a description or account of Richard Wright on Beale Street. And when I read that, like I really put the book, or my Kindle down. I still call the Kindle my book. I, I put it down for a minute and I had to think. And I thought, you know, 
I, I think a lot about Richard Wright as legacy and sort of meaning of that name and in, in the African-American intellectual tradition. And he's identified with Mississippi, obviously, as childhood, black boy, as that documentation, uh, Chicago, Harlem, Paris. But then seeing Wright on Beale Street, Wright in Memphis. So he's not just in Memphis, like at the train, he's on Beale Street, right? And for me, it was seeing Wright and Memphis in that same paragraph did a couple of things. I have, it, it was jarring to me. It made me think, if I could sort of blow this up moment up for a mo- for a second, it had a kind of instant effect, even just in a couple paragraphs of what something like Paul Gilroy's Black Atlantic book does, which is say, we tend to think of, you know, Gilroy, we tend to think of African-American thinkers as U.S. centric, but here's an account of them as exiled abroad as transatlantic thinkers. And at that moment, it's not transatlantic, but it was this moment where I was like, you know, with the case of Richard Wright, it really draws out this, like, what would it mean to think about Richard Wright as rooted through Memphis as people moving from Mississippi to Chicago are, right? That's that's not a strange thing, but I don't think people think that about Richard Wright. So I'm not necessarily, I mean, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Richard Wright example, but just in general, for me, that figure, that 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 account really said so much about the power of a really simple title, Unseen Light. So I wanted to ask you about the title, sort of how it resonated for you, why, why that's the title. And I just wanted to, to, to narrate into that through the Richard Wright example, because it was something that really sort of disoriented me, but in that disorientation had me oriented for the book. Take a bow, Aram. That was all. That was all, Aram, baby. Oh, I disagree. Uh, talk, that, it was great. Man. The Thank of necessity. you. We were writing the proposal, and we were trying to get it done soon. And we're like, we need a title. And I just literally just grabbed my copy of Black Boy off the shelf and looked for the Richard Wright section at the end where he writes about Memphis. And I just I emailed some quotes to Chuck. I'm like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And he's like, I like. So I don't deserve all the credit. Chuck's like, I like that unseen light. Like play with that what, what can we do with that and let's and, and chuck was the one who actually sort of explained like what we how we can use it and what we can do it so i found the yeah. words but he found what they meant yeah. <laughs> um, and so we, we slapped it on a proposal like i think we decided that over email in about 15 minutes yeah pretty much uh, and but then it ends up being 15 15 is a little long dude 15 is <laughs> a little long <laughs> No, but um, i mean you know but the you know but your your initial inclination right to I mean, you remember that Richard Wright spent some time in Memphis, right? You know, and so, so that's the entryway into to to to, to this piece, right? You know, and so, yeah. so that was, I mean, so that was crucial, right? And so, you know, so so kudos, you know, shout out to you, my brother, for um, you know, for 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 pulling for going there first, right? You know, you're like Memphis. I would not have gone to Richard Wright thinking about Memphis, right? You know, I think a whole bunch of people probably would not have gone to Richard Wright thinking about Memphis, but you went to Richard Wright, which was, which wound up being pitch perfect, right? You know, because he, he's here and he wants to leave, right? He's, he's like, I got to get out of Memphis, right? Cause I am on my mm-hmm. way towards, I am drawn towards these unseen lights that I see that I think I see in these other places that I think I see in Chicago, mm-hmm. that I think I see in New that I think I see in places that are not in the American South. Right. So, so yeah. And so, so that gave us, that gave us a lot of wiggle room to sort of play with, you know, um, literally the unseen lights here. Let's, let's talk about, you know, let's talk about the things Richard Wright does not see in Memphis. Right. Let's talk about, you know, let's talk about all of the things that he's going to, you know, all of the virtues he's going to extol once he gets to Chicago, Let's talk about how he, mm-hmm. how he missed those things here in Memphis. 
right? Yeah. Which is, you know, which is sort of par for the course over the over the course of the last century and a half, right? In terms of thinking mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of thinking about, in terms of thinking about freedom, in terms of thinking about um, black mobility, in terms of thinking about the ways in which you know northern cities have been framed for black people, right? And, and the migration narratives and things of this nature, right? This is the other thing that Unseen Light's trying to push back against. It's like, well, actually, you know, there's there's some vibrant communities here. Um, we've got some initial ideas about the, the the constitution of these vibrant communities, but here's an opportunity for us to talk really explicitly about all of the stuff that Richard Wright, you know, God bless him and his family. Here's, here's all the stuff that they missed. Here's all the stuff that yeah. they did not see while they were while while they were here, right? Mm-hmm. And to your point about you know. Um not thinking of Richard Wright necessarily in, in the context of Memphis, right? I think part of that is Memphis's unique place in the geography of the United States and in the South, right? That it is this way station for so many people, uh, yeah. that so many cent- people who are central to the African-American experience uh, come through Memphis one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, everyone coming through the Mississippi Delta on their way to Chicago, right? Some stop in Memphis and stay in Memphis. Others, others continue on. Uh, if you think about it, in the civil rights era, if even if Memphis wasn't sort of the a hotbed of uh, national civil rights activism prior to '68, it was where everybody came through on their way to the Delta, on their way to Arkansas. Uh, and so the Lorraine Motel was has this civil rights history that certainly predates 1968. This is part of what I wrote about in that in my Meredith March book and in the chapter for Unseen Light. There's a way that Memphis is kind of like the central hub. Uh, mm-hmm. in civil rights organizing. Um, so yeah, it's always there. Um, and your right story isn't that unusual in that sense, I think. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of twist on, I think it's Trenton, New Jersey's uh, uh, slogan, right? Trenton makes the world takes. Is that Trenton? Yeah, I right? think there is this. There is that sense of, you know, uh, that's when you say unseen light, it's such an interesting phrase because it's like the light's there, but not seen. It's not let's shine a light on a thing you haven't seen. That's what I liked about the title, right? It's not lights on things unseen or something like that. It's unseen light. It's the light that's there, right? It's the making that in the case of Richard Wright is something taken, but that passageway, it, you know, it really matters. And spoiler alert, he grew to hate Chicago too. <laughs> should have maybe maybe he should have stayed in Memphis. <laughs> and Harlem and everything except parties in Paris. So um, <laughs> he may have been predisposed towards uh towards that sort of mood. So um I really one of the things you know I really love about the volume is the range of the essays. I I mentioned that before. You know I think when you know I think it probably goes without saying when people think of Memphis they think of cultural production, right? Go read Peter Goralnik, right? Go read about Sun Studio. Go read about Stax. Maybe if somebody's a little esoteric, they read about High. And that's a sort of imagination, right? And then the assassination of King and the Lorraine Motel. Um, but, you know, this volume, obviously, its aim is to expand that vision, right? To let that light that's there be seen that is around broader concepts and historical experience, uh, including migration. This gets to the Richard Wright part, right? The migration from, you know, Mississippi to Chicago is a way station in Memphis. And so that sense of migration, student activism, black power, all the the local and and non-local political machinations. And so there's, you know, there's two two questions I sort of pull out of this. Um, And I'll just start with the first one, uh, which is, 
a different version of what I asked before, like, what is it about Memphis that calls for a volume? It's also like, what do you, what do you hope is the, the image of Memphis that emerges out of this in terms of the popular imagination of the city? Because it doesn't lack a deep engagement with Memphis as a, a generator of culture, but it's also about all of these other things. You know, what is that something else beyond Memphis as, as a cultural center that you hope really emerges clearly out of the volume? Aaron, maybe? Sure. I mean, the essay that jumps to mind uh, based on what you're talking about is Charles Hughes' essay, uh, which is about Rufus Thomas, right, who was this mm -hmm. central figure in, in Memphis music, right? Uh, part of the Stack story for part of the Sun, uh, Sun Records story before that. Uh, sort of, he's, the, with the exception of Isaac Hayes, maybe there's no one more associated with Black Memphis music uh, in this romantic era than, than Rufus mm -hmm. Thomas. Um, and what Charles Hughes tries to get us to see in this essay is to move beyond kind of like the romantic perception of music is this place where black and white people got along, right? Music is this yeah. place where race didn't matter. Uh, because if you, he says, look at the words of Rufus Thomas himself. Mm -hmm. Race ma race matters. Um, and it's, you know, he can it's continually about uh, Thomas's uh, political activism, about his frustration with how he feels he's not given uh, credit as a songwriter, the lack of opportunities that he that, that he has vis-a-vis -vis white uh, uh, musicians. Um, so I think Charles's essay can, can really speak to moving beyond kind of the myths of Memphis as this uh, just feel good place, right? Just as this place where there's great music. Yeah, and that was you know part of my my sort of follow up question, which which you know you've you've started to address you know about the just the title that's uh, of of Charles Hughes's essay, which is the quote from Rufus Thomas: "You pay one hell of a price to be black," and I really like that way that um, his his argument or that that uh, sorry that his title captures that intertwining of something like. Um, cultural production, racial politics, and the political imagination of the city. Charles. Yeah, I was just thinking about your, you know, your, your, your question and, um, and the way that, you know, we are trying to shift the popular imagination, right? You know, the popular imagination of, from, of Memphis. The other thing that we realized, right, is that, you know, the, the, the way Memphis has been shaped in the minds of so many folks is that's, that's, that's not an accident, right? You know, yeah. that's not, that's not oops, right. In terms of, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, in terms of how this has, um, how this is unfurled, that's definitely part. And that's, that's the, that's the result of a, you know, of a, of a very intentional political, you know, cultural economic, um, project, right. To, to portray Memphis, you know, to Disneyfy, uh, to, to Disneyfy, uh, Memphis, right. Um, and so, so Charles Hughes's brilliant essay, right, is, is a great entryway into, you know, having us understand and grapple with the fact that, look, you know what, hey, uh, race matters, right? You know, um, this, all, of, all of this cultural production is going place in, taking place in the context of a segregated city, right? It's, yeah. going, it's, taking, it's taking place in the context of, of racial subordination, right? And in racial subordination, you know, and when, and when racial subordination is present, um, people take a hit. Right. You know, um, black folk, um, black folk take a hit when it when that when that happens, they get paid less money. Right. They get less recognition or no recognition at all. Um, yeah. You know, these these you know, these these interracial 
um, cultural spaces that have been, you know, that we've been led to believe are, you know, sort of raceless and race free and segregation free. That's mm-hmm. a fiction. That's that's not how that actually works. Right. You know, this this is that's a product of white folks imagination. Um, so then when we drill down, we see and understand how um, the political projects that lead us to thinking that, you know, Stacks is a racial nirvana, those that same political project is also in play on all of these other fronts. Right. You know, because black folks had been allowed to vote um, in the early part of the 20th century, therefore, since they're able to vote, well, then they're, they're you know, well, then there there must be there must be more equal. Right. There, there must be more mm-hmm. equality in Memphis than in other places. So we don't have to worry about Memphis as much. We need to worry about Mississippi or South Carolina or, you know, or, or Alabama or whatever, whatever. Mm, scratch the surface. Right. Yeah. You know, um, voting does not you know, voting does not uh, uh, voting does not um lessen or diminish the levels of violence black activists are actually facing in in the 1920s 30s 40s 50s and 60s right you know so so again the political project um that's in play here um has to be contended with on all of these fronts right on the cultural on the cultural aesthetic front on the on on the front on the uh on the political front when it comes to interactions between blacks and whites when it comes to Right, the confluence of race and class and, and and poverty, right? All of these places and spaces, this stuff has to be contended with because when we don't contend with it, we wind up with this, you know, again, we wind up with this Disney-fied version of 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 the city of Memphis, right? We wind up with this version of Memphis that um that was that gets abstracted out of the region. It gets abstracted out of the Mid-South. It gets abstracted out Absolutely. of the narrative. It gets abstracted out of American history, right? Oh, well, you didn't have these problems in Memphis. Well, well hold up. Hell yeah, hell yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, there's there there are no there's no black people running around who who came up in the 1940s and 50s who were saying to themselves, "Ah, oh, yeah, you know, we, we segregation wasn't a problem here." <laughs> right. Yeah. That's not how yeah. that's not how that worked. Right. So mm-hmm. so the other so the other thing that I'll say really quickly, right, the other thing that the other thing that's in play here, right, is, um, you know, the project to create to, to turn Memphis into an amusement park. Um, right. Is also a, is also a part and parcel of, of the project to, you know, to to try and obscure um, these realities. Right. The, the stuff of the stuff in from my perspective right the stuff of black life right yeah. the stuff of, uh, of of day-to-day of day-to-day living for black folk in in, in the city right mm-hmm. you know um and so and so yeah there are some ways that memphis might look a little different from some other spots but there's some ways in which memphis doesn't look different at all right and so we have yeah. to know and understand which we have to know and understand what those differences and what those similarities are and when you say that about this sort of disnification of of um of the image of memphis it's it's sort of interesting how stacks which had been a part of some of the blackest moments in american history you know if you think about their like musical events and isaac hayes as a culture maker also were part of that you know the cropper hayes um the cropper hayes collaboration you know, ends up producing, you know, one of the, the most important moments in African-American music, movements in African-American music, really. But that Steve Cropper being the co-writer of these songs ends up being the sort of source for the white imagination to make this into a Disneyland of racial politics. Right. Right. Rather than understanding, you know, this was a, 
you know, first of all, that's not what it was. That's not exactly uh, stacks as a as a cultural event unto itself. Um, to think of it as a sort of racial utopia, but also the the way in which that that was a complete enigma nationally and and of course in Memphis. Right, right. You know, and and back to the assassination, right? You know, the assassination of King, um, and how you know, and and how you know, Stax is is framed in that moment, right? You know, because that moment looms so large. Um, so for a lot of folks in the nation, but also particular, very particularly here in Memphis, right? That King's death in our city, right, is you know, is an event that still sh- that still shadows the city, right? Yeah. Um, and that event has been used. Um, in in various ways and one of the ways the event gets used is okay well after king gets killed in memphis well then that's the moment where race relations start to go off the rails right you know the moment that folks start to utter black power um Mm -hmm. the moment that you know we start to see you know we, we start to see uh we start to see black nationalists uh tendencies the moment we start to see black people wanting to actively cultivate black spaces that's when you know that's when all of the love flew out of the room Right. You know, that's mm-hmm. when things flew apart. And back to Charles Hughes's work. Right. Charles Hughes would, you know, in his book, uh, in his book, Country Soul. Right. He's like, well, that's not actually accurate. Right. Actually, what's going on in Memphis and back to Stax. Right. You know, and, and in the post 68 period, that's Stax's most productive uh, and profitable moment. Right. Mm-hmm. As 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 a uh, as, as a business, as you know, as a part of the industry. Right. So, you know, so so how does it work out? Right. That. You know, that moment in time when we start to see more black faces in leadership and we start to see people speaking very specifically to, right, you know, to, um, you know, to, 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 to a black consciousness, black issues and black concerns and black realities, you know, that's when, you know, the narrative shifts about, you know, oh, oh well, now, you know, the, the love, again, the love has gone out of the room. Right? What happened to our beloved community? So then give that gives us another opportunity to say, well, how beloved was our community to begin with? Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. how how beloved was this community when black folks were still learning, you know, 40 cents to the dollar of white folks in the in the music industry. Right. And, and mm-hmm. all across, you know, and all across the all across the city. So it's 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 really important for us to to break down and contend with these, you know, these these master narratives of Memphis, because when we don't do that, um, you know, we're left with uh, we're left with the Disneyfication. Well, I, you know, absolutely. Uh, that's uh, if if that could be one effect of the book, <laughs> it would have made a major impact on, uh, you know, seeing the light of of Memphis. You know, which is the book documents. And so this is our so next question, because as it documents that, it's interesting. It was interesting to me to read across these essays and see the different registers of of culture and politics that I found myself reading fair or not. So this is part of the question about, you know, how do, do you think the volume can be framed in terms of this or not, but of the old cliche about the South of being this incredibly um, at times hilarious, at times tragic, at times amazing mixture of saintliness and, and sin, you know, this whole, you know, the barrel house on Saturday night, church on Sunday, you didn't sleep between. The sort of humor that goes with that, the sort of folksiness that goes with that, but also the way that that you know the, the South is, is has always been this sort of holy place in terms of sort of religiosity, but also laden with sin and moonshine and the wrong kind of music, but also the most righteous music. And when I was reading the volume, it had a kind of 
at the level of ideas, a sort of trajectory that resonated with that, you know, the righteousness of political struggle and the, the, the sort of sultriness of its cultural production. But it was also doing something very different by putting those together in ways that they weren't held separate, which, of course, the dualism of the saint and the sinner really does. So I know that this is a, a cliche, like all cliches, they're sort of ridiculous, but they also land somewhere about the South as a sort of mixture of saint and sin. But I'm wondering if, if the book is looked at in that frame, you know, what do you, what do you think? How do you think the book talks to that or back against that? It's an interesting question. Um and it makes me think like, you know, a lot about Beverly Bonds essay on L.O. Taylor. She's um, mm. uh, she's writing about a uh, figure who was very prominent in the 1930s uh, in Memphis. Uh, this is at a time of sort of waning of black political activism to some degree. The, the black uh, people who have influence within the city tend to do so through the Crump machine. Robert Church Jr. has lost a lot of his influence. And so they tend to be what some historians are called accommodationists. Uh, and Taylor is in some ways part of that milieu. Uh, but what makes him fascinating is his, uh, he's got this career as a, as a photographer as well. And he takes these really striking f- photographs of people in, in the African-American community in Memphis at that time. And he kind of like renders them human. Uh, he, or emphasizes their human, like they, they, they come off as more um, authentic uh, in his photography uh, than in sort of the typical picture of, um, black life in Memphis uh, in, this, uh-huh. in this more romantic sense. So I think it, there's a sense of sort of complicating that sort of easy stereotype, so to speak. Uh, of mm-hmm. Even even though that sort of saintliness in dynamic, I think is, I mean, that's, that's certainly part of Southern culture, right? White and black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the essay for me that comes to mind is Elton Weaver's essay on, on, on the Kojic church and in, um, in Memphis, right? And so, you know, for, for black folk, the Saint Center dichotomy is you know is just is always complicated right and messy and is is never quite as you know is never quite as dichotomous as as it's been as it's been made out to be mm-hmm. um you know uh the kojic church is historically speaking is not too fond uh, as a religious institution not too fond of you know dabbling in you know dabbling in politics in very explicit ways right um, and so what Elton shows us is um, how, uh, you know, how the economic, the economic power of the institution, right, is able to serve as a bulwark against, um, you know, sort of the racist incursion of the Crump machine, right, in terms of, mm-hmm. hey, you know, buy these products, buy this type of insurance, buy this, buy that, right, you know, and so, um, and so, there, you know, so there's a blurring there, right, you know, so when, you know, when the fight comes to you, um, you know, you use your acts, you use your resources, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, and so for me, that's that, that's just, that's another example of a blurring of these a blurring of these lines, right? You know, um, you know, the struggle, you know, the Black freedom struggle is a necessary blurring of these of these lines, right? Is a necessary blurring of of the the sphere of the the holy and the sphere of the of, of the of of the uh, of, of the secular, right? Um, because we know, you know, because black folk know, look, you know, we can't simply exist in one or the other, right? You know, we, everybody, well, a whole bunch of people exists in both of these. How do we, how do we deploy both of these, right? You know, how can they be in conversation with each other? How, how can they, you know, how, how are the interactions between these two things? How can they help move us forward, right? How can they help yeah. get us free? Um, 
you know, and so and so folks are down to try all manner of stuff. Right. So, you know, so that's the other thing that you realize coming in to a project like this. Right. Is that people who live, you know, it's my sense of it now. Right. Is that people who live in the city, um, uh, you know, even the folks who say they take that dichotomy seriously, if you press them long enough. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. It's like uh, we take that, you know, I take this dichotomy seriously, but, you know, certain restrictions do apply. Right. You know, look at the look at the asterisk here. Right. You know, in terms of what in terms of what I need to do, what we need to do to um, to move this neighborhood, to move this block, to move our family, to move our community Mm -hmm. a little closer toward what we think is freedom. Well, then. Right. You know, if we need to make some shifts and adjustments between these two between these two things, then that's fine. That's what we'll do moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those I'm glad I asked the question. It's a really interesting uh responses um and you know in sort of thinking about sort of mythology of the south even i mean i think in particular a mythology of a place like memphis where you could have you know the port town that leads to beale street but also kojic you know as things that have come up it makes that um the political and historical commentary in the book i think really cuts across these differences in productive ways that you that you've both pointed out and that's to really think locally or even regionally about it. Um, and I know this, you know, for historians and political scientists and theorists, um, it's a common question, but I, I do want to ask, you know, this is Unseen Light is about the city of Memphis. And I love that singular focus. Um, so it gives the city a sense of contour and texture at in multiple registers that it deserves right? So that the unseen light is seen. But I'm interested in how you think about the stories told about Memphis, right? The histories of Memphis, whether it's culture, politics, religion, and so forth. How you see that as mirrored by or even um, distant from or sort of in between uh, national questions about our national character. I mean, Memphis is a specific place but when you say, you know, the disnification of racial relations in thinking about stacks or thinking about King, you know, in memory, I mean, those are also national problems that are have a kind of intensification in Memphis or you're getting attention to in this particular volume. So really, when you think about Memphis's political and cultural struggles that emerge out of the book, how do you see these mapping on to a larger sense, both periodized and contemporary uh, national politics and national cultural production. Hmm. I don't know that I have an easy answer to that question. For me, you know, I, I think the Unseen Light connects to a kind of a broader project in terms of how a lot of people think about African American history in the sense that we want to render a more complicated picture, a more human picture, uh, one that embraces nuance, one that embraces uh, that, you know, people don't fit into one easy category that, you know, to move beyond kind of a mythical, uh, mythologized version of African American history. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the essays in this, in this uh, volume help us to think about that, right? The, the ways that uh, Black political activists had to negotiate through this white paternalist power structure and win small gains here and face resistance here and, and to not see just sort of this narrative of co- sort of consistent progress and triumph over time while at the same time acknowledging the, the progress that is made. Um, you know, the, the last couple essays, the ones by Zandria Robertson, Robinson, who looks at uh, the community of Soulsville where Stax uh, Music is, 
uh, and sort of pushes back against uh, sort of a romantic vision of, of Stacks and, and wants us to see the way that community residents now in Soulsville are invested mm -hmm. in a story about the neighborhood that is um, that puts black black people at its center and that and that benefits the community now today. Uh, yeah. And Michael Honey, who is you know perhaps the most um, well known historian of of the city of Memphis uh, in the twentieth century and has done so much with African American history and labor history, and has written a definitive book about the sanitation strike. Uh, but he kind of takes a look at Memphis labor history through the years and ends uh, with a, with a with a labor strike that happened relatively recently at a, at a Kellogg's plant, Kellogg's cereal, um, and wants us to see the continuity in those struggles. Mm -hmm. um, so, at least you know one way that I think about the book's significance is is a part of that larger conversation in African American history to to complicate easy histories uh, of African American life. Yeah, I think that's that's the key here, right? Is to complicate these easy, easy histories, the national narratives. Again, you know, there's very specific political projects, right? And one of the national political projects with regard to civil rights and, and racial equality is, is the political project, which really wants to push, which pushes the narrative that, you know, we had a civil rights movement and it was successful, right? And we won, right? Um, even though King was assassinated, um, life was better for black people, right? Cue the patriotic music, Right. You know, um, Michael Jackson dropped Thriller, um, you know, uh, Barack Obama got elected. Right. Um, you know, uh, there's all kinds of, you know, black people on television now. So there's this really powerful narrative and it's bipartisan. It's omnipartisan. Right. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's the thing that we latch on to. And you, you see people latching on to and on during the King federal holiday, you see folks latching on to it in the black history month, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but when you, when you have a local narrative about a city like Memphis, right, you get to see some of the contradictions and some of the, com the complexity, you get to see um, the unseen lights, but you also get to see the unfinished business. Right. So, you know, hmm. this book came out, That's you know, great. the first edition, the first edition came out in 2018. You know, we made our deadline. Woohoo! Um, and, uh, you know, we can t look around and, and say that, you know, in 50 years after King's assassination, you know, sanitation workers are still striking, are still fighting for decent wages. Right. Um, you know, we're still in the midst of grinding poverty. We are still, you know, we're um, uh, poor and working class. There's a there's a housing shortage for poor and working class people, although. Um, you know, the developers are building stuff hand over fist here in, in Memphis. They're, we're down 30,000 units for uh, of affordable housing, right, in one of the poorest cities in the, in the country, right? So, you know, so Unseen Light points us, points us in this direction, right? It points us to this idea, this understanding that, you know, the struggle, um, you know, to what Frederick Douglass tried to tell us back in the day, right? There's no struggle without progress. And so, um, you know, uh, and, 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 and those two things are intimately connected and they are still intimately connected in 2022. Right. Um, so that's one of the things I think um, unseen light helps us to helps us to grapple with. So as a sort of final, you know, invitation for you, for you both to reflect, I wanted to read this, uh, the opening paragraph from the coda, which you wrote Charles um, and just get your response to it. Sort of what, you know, what motivated it, but also how you see this as saying something, you know, I asked about the sort of local national question, but here's about the sort of 
folding up of time in this paragraph, right? The expanse of time um, and how the volume in your remark here on the volume sort of collapses time of the past of Memphis to the contemporary of Memphis or the contemporary of the United States. I'm going to read this. I, I have to say, I think it's really beautifully written. It's so deeply ethical um, and provocative and very uh, painful, but in, for that reason, incredibly important. So I'll read it and then just ask you, Charles, maybe to, to say a bit and then Aram. You write, where on, a t- where on a timeline of Memphis history would you place the following scenario? In the wake of the killing of an unarmed black person, black Memphians organized mass-based protests, community meetings, and voter registration drives. These actions represented a collective response to the persistence of police brutality, economic and residential segregation, racist urban policy, and the palpable ambivalence of the city's political leadership. These sustained efforts to confront racial inequality resulted in both increased political influence and heightened retaliation from the white power structure. Would you place it in the nadir of American race relations, perhaps early in the 20th century? How about in the 1940s? Certainly this sounds like something that could have occurred in the 1960s. Or perhaps you would be inclined to place it somewhere in the post-civil rights period. So... I, I I found this um, to be an amazing way of, of introducing the wrap-up of the volume, this question of what it means to talk about Memphis and talk about historical time. I, um, I was inspired by one of my uh, dissertation advisors, Charles Payne, who um, who's written eloquently about Mississippi and um, has this great volume debating the civil rights movement with Stephen Lawson um, where he does, he does a similar thing, right. To talk about, you know, con- contemporary events. And so I was inspired by, I was inspired by that shout out to, to you, Charles. Um, because, you know, in 2018, when I, when I wrote that, um, you know, and a little later on in the, in the coda, right. You know, we are, we were in that moment, right. You know, cops had killed an unarmed black man, Darius Stewart, um, we were in the midst of, uh, so Memphis joined a host of other cities across the country, um, in, you know, in protests against, uh, uh, against the, the police department and, and against cops who are, were, were killing unarmed black people. Right. So, you know, so one of the sentiments that, you know, I would hear from a lot of people is like, you know, we're, why we're still here, yeah. right. You know, we're just, we're literally still, we're literally still here. And so, so the question then becomes, right, um, how do we, you know, since time has collapsed, right, you know, since, you know, since this is a phenomenon, this is a moment, this is an event that we can literally stick anywhere in the timeline, right? You know, we can put this in 1898, we can put this in 1918, we can put it in 58, 68, you know, um, certainly we, we put it in 2018. Um, the question then becomes, w- w- what's the response? Right. The question mm-hmm. then becomes, you know, how do you how do you make meaning of this moment? Um, how do you cultivate a sense of how do you cultivate a sense of hope? Um, but also, how do you cultivate a sense of a sense of urgency to to both speak to that moment, but also to speak to larger, broader 
concerns that are that that help to produce that moment right mm-hmm. so a little later in the coda i'll talk about um you know i'll talk about community meetings the mayor throws together a couple of you know some uh, a, a listening session right to, to talk specifically about this issue and and um you know and there's a, an array of things that people bring bring up right you know because again folks in the community know and understand that you know the killing of an individual that's a function of a, a host of things right that's 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 that that's working on a number of levels right um and they brought that communal wisdom right and that communal insight and that communal range of vision um and that communal frustration and that communal anger to these to to that speak you know to that uh you know to to that to that event right and so mm-hmm. um it was painful and powerful to to witness and so so that was again that so that was probably the the primary motivation of 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 thinking about and framing that initial uh, that initial paragraph I think, you know, as historians, we're always asking the question of, you know, what changes over time, right? Um, how do we get from point A to point B? Uh, and that's a very important question to, to answer, right? Uh, and it is key to think about what is different b- about 1918 from 2018, uh, and how did we get to, the, to that point? We ha- could, should be continually asking those questions. But sometimes we forget to also ask the question about continuity, right? About what hasn't changed over time, and, and why is that the case? Um, and so... You know, Chuck's Coda really does a, a really poetic job, I think, of helping to see that while circumstances have changed over time, of course, right? No one is dropping the severed head of L persons on Beale Street in, in the 21st century. Um, but the the process of community mobilization, the process of um, black activism, uh, the responses to white supremacy, they remain, you know, uh, relatively consistent over time, and that can provide models, right? That's why people look to history, right? They want what we call a usable past. Um, and when, if we, you know, from the beginning, we pitched the idea of this book as something that wouldn't just tell the history of Memphis, but would be something that could could for, could create a usable past for people today. And so we hope we did that. Well, that's a nice place to uh, transition out of our conversation, which is a nice way to say end or conclude. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, well, that phrase usable past, um, I think is absolutely an effect of, of the book. Um, and I think the book in that way is full of all the, the pleasures and pains of not only Memphis, but, uh, certainly of the United States and the broader Americas. If I can just be as someone who does sort of comparative American stuff, um, I think it's really the, the local and the hemispheric really resonate in really interesting ways for anyone who indulges the particularities of this book. And as we've concluded here, um, sort of prompted by the opening of Charles Coda, um, I think really opens up to, to really uh, wide significance of the ideas in the book. So thank you for making the time but uh, to talk today, but I, you know, much more than that, thank you for the time and energy and passion put into putting this project together. I think it's immensely important. Um, I loved reading it. It was pleasure, but it was also uh, an occasion to learn from so many different perspectives. It's a really unique volume that way and incredibly urgent. So thank you for it all. Thanks for having us, man. Really appreciate it, John. 
Thank you, John. And thank you for reading it in the way that we hoped that people would read it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, I certainly did, and hopefully other folks do too. So, all right, well, take care.